0: Okay, so we're going to be once again in Judges chapter 6. So if you could flip there. We will be starting off in verse 25 this week. And I'm just going to read that section from uh, verse 25 to verse 32. It says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men to his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, He did it by night. And when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done such a thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubabal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. So this section of text picks up where we uh, left off last week. And last week we were introduced to Gideon and his, his call, kind of the context in which he was in, in the period of Judges. So before we get into the happenings of verse 25 to 32, I just wanna remind you of kind of where we've been the last couple of weeks. Um, first and foremost, we remember that Midian is a group of people oppressing the Israelites. They're oppressing the Israelites specifically by coming in and essentially destroying all their crops. They're coming in, taking the crops for themselves, staying until the land is desolate, and then leaving and going back to wherever they came from. And so the Israelites have been oppressed by them for several years now, and to the point where, as we, as Justin pointed out last week, Gideon is hiding, and that's where he's threshing out uh, the wheat. He's, he's hiding away and out of sight so that he won't be exposed or... or um, at risk of being attacked by the Midianites. And it's in this kind of cowardly context, in this very vulnerable state that Israel's in, that Gideon encounters an angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord says to Gideon that God is commissioning him out to be essentially the deliverance for the Israelites. And Gideon, of course, doesn't necessarily trust that at first, and he he kind of tests the the command. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, as we talked about last week. It's not necessarily uh, bad on Gideon's part. He's just inquiring of God to see if this really is a message from God. And so uh, the angel of the Lord interacts with Gideon. Gideon says, okay, show me a sign. And it's through that sign that it's confirmed this really was a message from God. And Gideon really is being commissioned out to go and essentially begin the uh, freedom for the Israelites. He's gonna begin to free them from Midian's grasp. And that takes us to verse 25, which is where we start off tonight. And we see that after the sign is given and the Lord speaks to Gideon, we see that verse 25 says, Later that night is when these events take place. Later that night is when the Lord comes to him and says, Take your father's bull. And he doesn't just say, Take your father's bull and sacrifice it to Yahweh. There's business that needs to be taken care of before an offering can be made to Yahweh. And this is a pretty uh, pretty interesting section because... It brings about, it pulls in some things that you get from the book of Leviticus and Numbers where there's the sacrificial system and the offering system given. Um, we see that there's a bull, the second bull, which is seven years old, which is coming. And we're not exactly told why that bull is coming until later in the command. So the first bull is his father's bull and it's there to help him pull down the idol for Baal, the, the altar there. And the second bull is going to be used not uh, to help pull down an altar, but actually as a sacrifice for the altar. And so that second bull, seven years old, is going to be used as a sacrifice. But before the sacrifice can be had and an offering can be made to the Lord, the idol for Baal needs to be pulled down. The Asherah, which is basically a wooden pole that uh, would be a representative of their female deity in the Canaanite pantheon, that needs to be cut down. And so both the Baal uh, altar and the Asherah monument both need to be destroyed before worship of Yahweh can continue. And that's specifically given in those instructions, right? You'll see that. Uh, I'll just read starting in that quote in verse 25. It says, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah beside it. And once that is taken care of, it continues in verse 26 and says, And then build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with the stones laid in due order and then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And you're going to do that with the wood of the Asherah that was just cut down. So God is using a very uh, tight and very, um, I don't know, recycling conscious system of having the offering done. He's going to cut down the Asherah and that's gonna be the very wood that he's going to need to burn an offering to the Lord. And no doubt this is something that is going to be pleasing to God because it's going to first and foremost deal with essentially the primary problem of the Israelites. And this is something that is worth bringing up because Uh, If you'll remember in verse 6 of chapter 6, you'll see something that is a pretty common expression uh, so far in the book of Judges. Remember the Israelites are being oppressed, and in verse 6 it says, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now when we get that statement, they cried out to help for the Lord, We as readers aren't necessarily sure if this is an authentic cry of repentance and they're sorry for their sinfulness, they're sorry for their idolatry, and they want to repent and turn towards God, or if this is merely a, we're sorry we got caught, can you please come help us? What becomes more clear in the verse, in verse 25 and 26, that Israel is not so much concerned with their actual idolatry, they're concerned with the punishment for their idolatry. And this has become clear multiple times so far in Judges, but it gets underscored here because the same Israelites who cry out for help to God, they get sent that prophet, that prophet preaches to them and says, you need to repent. It's, it's after that period of time that we still find Gideon in this current position where God has to tell him, go destroy the idol of Baal that your father owns, the one that's in your father's house. So this is an Israelite who has an idol for Baal, an idol for Asherah, who likely was part of that group that cried out to help from God. And so we see that it's not an authentic, I'm sorry for my sin, or I hate my sin. It's a, we just don't like the punishment that goes along with our sin. So what God's not going to do is he's not going to just rescue them from the punishment. He's going to first deal with the sin issue, the idolatry in their midst. And then after that, as you'll see later in the book of Judges, a few chapters later, then Gideon is used to deliver them from the Midianites. But it's not before the idolatry is addressed. The idolatry needs to go first, and then the actual deliverance itself comes. And so we see that uh, the idol is his dad's idol, and this is the one he has to take down. And so uh, it kind of forces the issue. It's going to force the issue of did Gideon's profession or did his testimony of believing that this is God, is that a true testimony? Is that an authentic confession of faith or is Gideon just pretending? And this action that he's about to take is going to force the issue because Gideon knows, and you can see this later in the verse, Gideon knows that as soon as he takes this action, it's going to cause quite a stir in the community. He's going to force the issue of, are we with Yahweh or are we with Baal? He's going to force the issue and he's going to expose the hearts of the community. And he knows if he's on the wrong side of that exposure, that the people will react negatively towards him. So God is now giving Gideon a command. Previously, Gideon asked God for a sign and he says, show me you're really God, show me you're really with me. God does so. And now God is demanding from Gideon essentially a sign to prove his His confession is authentic, that he actually is a loyalist towards Yahweh. And so Gideon is going to be tasked with cutting down this idol, uh, throwing down the altar of Baal, and then offering then later a sacrifice to Yahweh in that place. And so verse 27 is going to reveal to us what actually happens. We see, so Gideon takes 10 of his servants and he does everything that the Lord tells him to do. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now that is a statement of Gideon's fear, you'll notice though that the author doesn't necessarily commentate on whether that is a uh, a good thing or a sinful thing that Gideon did or whether that was just a concession Gideon made as he was going through and exacting this uh, this event. What what is clear is that he is afraid somewhat of the people but not so afraid that he's not going to be obedient to God. So you kind of have this a little bit give and take with Gideon and his actions. And then verse 28 we see the reaction of the people and that reaction shouldn't surprise us because they have an idol towards Baal and Asherah and yet they're crying out to Yahweh. And we see their reaction in verse 28. The men of the town rise early. They find that the altar of Baal is broken down and the Asherah has been cut down. And they see that there's a bull that's been offered on the altar. And they say to one another, not glory be to God, we've, we've offered to Yahweh, right? If you, if you read other sections of scripture, when offerings are made to Yahweh, the people of Israel are supposed to praise and worship and sing and dance and uh, rejoice. That's not what we see here. What you see here instead is they say, who has done this thing? And after they search and inquire, they find out who it is. They say, it's Gideon. And rather than praising Gideon, what they say is, they they go to his father, Joash, and they say, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut the Asherah down beside it. And so this is a complete reversal of what the Israelites ought to be doing. The Israelites should have exacted this kind of punishment from whoever put up that idol for Baal in the first place, and whoever erected the Asherah pillar in the first place, that is the sin that is guilty of death. Erecting a false God is a punishable by death. But instead of that, they're defending the false God, and they're saying, whoever tore down the false God, whoever was responsible for this defamation of Baal and Asherah, we're going to put that person to death. And so you see how distorted. The people of Israel have gotten. They've they've become so lost in their idolatry that they've completely reversed what they ought to be defending and protecting. And instead, they're defending and protecting the very thing that is causing them to be stuck in their sinfulness. The very thing that's causing their oppression is what they're clinging on to desperately. And then Joash has this amazingly insightful comment. And it echoes a little bit of what Elijah says when he faces off against the prophets of Baal later in scripture. And he says something like this. He says, If Baal is really God, let Baal deal with the people who oppose him. Don't fight for him yourself. Just see if Baal is actually who you believe him to be. Now, that's a pretty significant claim. And what he's doing here is actually very clever because the people of Israel are actually treating Baal like he's a God that can do things. They treat Baal like he's a God who can bring them harvest. They treat Baal like he's a God who can uh, control the weather and the seasons. And if Baal is really that powerful certainly Baal would be able to deal with someone who defamed him. If Baal is so powerful that he can bring the Israelites victory and and plethora of wealth, then he should be able to deal with one single dissenter. But when none of that's going to happen, which you'll see in the text, none of that does happen, the people who were demanding that Gideon be put to death for destroying Baal, it kind of begins to sow some doubts for them. You can imagine that uh, as Joash stands before them and he opposes them, they say, fine, Baal is God, we believe that, we'll let Baal deal with it. And then maybe some time goes by and a day passes and you see that nothing is happening to Gideon. There's nothing happening. Baal actually is a completely powerless God. He can't do anything to defend himself. So you can imagine two of these Israelites talking to one another and saying, you know, I was pretty sure that Baal was in fact God, but now that he's not doing anything to defend himself, I'm starting to doubt the claims that we were actually worshiping for. What's what's opposite of that in scripture is you'll see that God never lets something like that happen. In fact, if you'll turn with me to Leviticus 10, we're going to see one of those instances. And remember, this is before the period of the judges. So this is a story that would have been passed around by the Israelites. They would be aware of this story. In Leviticus 10, you have a a kind of false worship, a a defamation of the worship of God. And I'm just going to start reading in verse 1. Says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and they laid incense on it, and they offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. And verse 2 And the fire came out from before the Lord, and it consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And so Aaron held his peace. Now, Nadab and Abihu, those men who were just killed, are Aaron's sons. And you'll notice the the false worship given to Yahweh is immediately punished by death. He reaches out and consumes them with the false fire that they've just offered to him. God can exact his own vengeance. He's totally capable of it. In fact, if you read the whole period of Moses wandering through the wilderness, you see that there's times where Moses is actually interceding with God to protect the people from God's wrath. There's times where God says, I'm gonna send snakes in their midst and he does. There's times where God opens up the ground and consumes the people who oppose him. There's times where God sends them quail and then causes the quail to poison them. There's all kinds of things that God can do to protect his glory and to prove that he is powerful. In contrast, Baal, it never does any of that. Every time Baal is opposed in scripture, he's shown to be just as powerless as he actually is. He can't bring down fire on the altar when Elijah challenges their, the false prophets of Baal. He can't He can't bring that fire down. He can't make it happen. God can consume the fire and the stone and the offering and the water. God is way more powerful than Baal. And this is something that uh, is becoming clear in the text. You, and this is not just God of the Old Testament stuff. In Acts 6, in the New Testament, there's two people, Ananias and Sapphira, who lie to the church. They say that we've sold this field for this amount of money, and so we bring that money to you, and look at us, we're offering, we're giving a tithe or an offering to God. And what happens is God knows that they've lied, and so he strikes down Ananias, and then three hours later, he strikes down Sapphira for lying to him. And so God is clearly capable of defending himself. He doesn't need necessarily us to intercede for him. The opposite is true, it's completely opposite with Baal. If Baal doesn't have a, a, a clique of people who are fighting on his behalf, He's completely powerless, he's a false God. And that's, that's abundantly true in scripture. And so you can imagine the kind of doubt that this sows for uh, these Israelites. And that's a good thing, God is showing them who he is and showing them how false Baal is. Now to contrast this, uh, something I said earlier was that these actions that Gideon takes kind of exposes the hearts of the people. It, it shows them to be loyal either to Yahweh or to Baal. And in some cases it shows Baal to be a fraud. Now, what is true is uh, Joash, who is Gideon's father, was the one who had this uh, with this false altar in his own household. But Joash is the one who's defending Gideon. So at some point, Gideon's action actually forces Joash to essentially flip sides. Joash probably recognized his mistake and then begins to fight on the side of Yahweh. He opposes the Baal worshipers and he fights on the side of Yahweh instead. And this kind of exposure exposure is actually really good. It's a good thing for the Israelites to go through this sifting process. That's the same kind of thing you see in the New Testament with Jesus. When Jesus comes on the scene, one of the things that happens even before he's born is there's prophecies about him. We've read some of these in Luke chapter two, where it says that the hearts of many people will be exposed by the coming of this child. That the Israelites will be, will be sifted or proven and some of the hearts that are professing to be towards God will be proven false. And some of the people who are adamantly against God will be proven to actually be God fearers by the actions of Jesus. He's going to sift them. He's going to force them to make decisions about himself. There's no neutral territory. You either have to be for God or against him, but you can't be anywhere in the middle. That's very much like what this action that Gideon takes does. It forces Gideon to profess to be a Yahweh worshiper and Gideon's going to go along with that and it's going to force other people to make a decision. Do we stand with Gideon or do we stand against Gideon? There's no neutrality in this case. And that's something that Jesus does even later in the Gospel of Luke. You see that he meets this rich young ruler who says, Lord, I love you, I'll follow you. Um, I'm I'm obedient to the law. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus calls his bluff and he says, if you really are as, as open to me as you want to be, as open as you profess to be, get rid of all your wealth and come follow me. And the man can't do it because the profession that he's made can't be actually backed up with his actions. It, it doesn't hold It doesn't hold to the standard that Jesus has, has held him to. And so Jesus has sifted him. He's shown him to be a false professor of faith in God. And so that's very much like what happens here uh, in the story of Gideon. It's, it, it, it forces the Israelites to reconcile whether they are for God or against him. And that, I think there's a lot to learn from that. Namely, uh, as we're maybe applying that to today in our context, we see that Yahweh is a God who demands certain kinds of actions from his people. It's not that God is a neutral God. And that's one of the things that offends people most about God. The, the existence of God is most challenged by people who have a problem with some downstream command or some downstream morality that God commands of his people. If God says that I command you to be uh, loyal to one wife for your entire life, people take issue with that and they say, you know, I don't like that so much. Maybe this God isn't so real after all. Because God is forcing morality. He's, he has commands that ought to be followed. And it exposes people as to whether they actually fear God or they don't. And so you see that in this text, even if, if, if Yahweh is Lord, it commands certain kinds of responses from Gideon. He has to obey God. He has to follow after him. He has to be obedient towards him. And it's the same in the New Testament. If, if Jesus is Lord, that, that challenges something in us that, that forces him to be Lord over our finances, over our, our careers, over all kinds of decisions that we make. We can't just keep him in some safe box off to the side. It requires us to get rid of our false gods and worship the one true God. And you see that those two things can't happen together. That's why God commands that first the false temple must be destroyed, first the false worship must be dealt with, before the true worship can be had. And that's exactly what happens uh, in conversion. Gideon is just acting out what happens in every person's heart at their moment of their conversion. And really the ongoing sanctification of every person's life. The death of the old false worship and the constant offering of new true worship. Paul says it uh, this way in Romans. He says, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship, that you're always dying to self. You're always destroying false idols and living towards God. And that's what is commanded of all Christians. And that's something that's not difficult to do because God enables us to do it. As he says to Gideon, do I not send you? Am I not with you in doing this? And that's exactly what he does even in the New Testament. He says, I send my spirit with you to help you to do this. You can't do it on your own. So just trust me. Walk with me, live out your salvation, but don't expect that you're just doing it on your own. Know that my spirit is accompanying you, that I who began a good work in you will bring it about to completion. And that's the consistent testimony throughout the pages of scripture. And there's much that's in, true in the story of Gideon that we can even uh, learn from today in our own lives. So let me just close us in prayer and then we can go to discussion time. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, you are a God who is constantly revealing yourself to be good and true and, and right. You are so kind to us, so patient with your people. Lord, we thank you for the consistent and the ongoing pursuit that you have of lost people. Lord, we thank you for the consistent and the ongoing pursuit you have, even of your own people, Lord. Lord, you are, you are active in this fight. You are... Uh, a God who is not content to be put to the sidelines and, um, and your worship is to be prioritized. And so Lord, we pray that that would be true in our own hearts as well, that as we seek to, to come after you and to worship you, that um, we would first be able to deal with, with false gods, false idols in our, in our own hearts. Lord, would you enable us to do that? Would you reveal those to us, Lord? Um, and would, you, uh, would you please walk with us in that, Lord? We know that we won't do it perfectly. Um, and... You have plenty of grace to give to us even as we walk it out in an imperfect way. So Lord, would You uh, even be with us tonight as we continue to um, open Your Word. Lord, would You reveal truths to us. Would You challenge us. And, um, Lord, in all things, would we be honoring and glorifying to You with our conversation. We pray these things in Your name. Amen.